Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, All Hands Vodka, Turtle Box Audio, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with Oliver White of the South Fork Lodge. And in this conversation, Oliver shares with us how a ski accident in college actually led to his lifelong pursuit of fly fishing. And how over the years, he's assessed various opportunities that have been presented to him and strive to take good risks that push him outside of his comfort zone. Opportunities like guiding in Argentina, Colorado, helping build a lodge in the Bahamas, and even a brief run at finance in New York City. Oliver is now pouring his efforts into the South Fork Lodge alongside his business partner, Jimmy Kimmel. This interview is definitely one of my favorites so far. I hope that you enjoy our time together and are able to take and apply a few lessons that Oliver has picked up along the way. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. Beep, 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 beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Oliver, thanks so much for hanging out and joining us on the podcast. This one took a little while to get together, but I've been looking forward to just being able to kind of hear more about your story and what you're up to. And um, thanks for making some time. Oh, absolutely, Hunter. Thanks so much, man. I, I appreciate the invite and sorry it took so long to pin me down. <laughs> no worries, man. Give me the rundown for you. I, I first came across you and kind of all the all the fly fishing stuff that you're doing the past few years, but I'm curious for you where it all really began as a kid and how you got involved in the outdoors. Yeah, I think like a lot of people, you know, I found fishing, uh, you know, as a young, young kid, right? I mean, man, as young as I can remember, I was into fishing. That wasn't fly fishing per se, but then it just was something I gravitated to when I was little. And my dad wasn't an angler. So, you know, I, I really, you know, was just on my own stumbling around in the creek, you know, with a cane bowl and then bass fishing and ultimately found fly fishing. But, you know, for my whole, whole childhood and whole life, though, it was something I enjoyed. And uh, my dad was not an angler, but he was an outdoorsman. So he was always taking us camping and hiking. And, you, you know, I have a couple brothers and, you know, we all, you know, we at one point I was guiding fly fishing and my middle brother was guiding rock climbing and my youngest brother was guiding whitewater rafting. So, you know, we were <laughs> always pretty outdoor driven. And then really for me, the turning point for fly fishing was I started fly fishing just on my own a little bit in college uh, or high school rather. So I, I started fly fishing a little bit in high school, um, you know, as a, as a teenager. And then it was really when I got to college that it kind of became something that I was really into and my junior year of college, I had a really bad skiing accident. And kind of prior to that, I would have told you skiing was my kind of number one pursuit. But 
uh, you know, I was 19. I was a junior, had a really bad accident. I broke three vertebrae in my back, my pelvis, my hip, my sacrum. Uh, you know, I missed a whole year of school and that recovery process was really, really brutal for me. And, uh, and during that, I can remember being back at my parents' house and I was in a back brace and a walker. And one of the few things that I could do to kind of keep my sanity would kind of go out in the yard of my walker and cast my fly rod. And, um, you know, wow. for me, that was really a big part of getting better from a pretty catastrophic event in my life. And it also meant that when I did get better, fly fishing kind of became the, the main focus of all these various outdoor things that I did. Wow. What, what, so tell me a little bit more about the ski accident. What happened there? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm from North Carolina. I was skiing in North Carolina. For those that don't know, you can ski in the South and North Carolina is, is kind of it. <laughs> and, uh, it was you know, I was in school. I actually took my youngest brother up for the weekend to kind of, kind of rip around a little bit. And I'd skied with him the whole day. And at the very last thing, I was like, all right, man, you stay here. I was 19. So that would have made him 13. I was like, you stay here at the bottom. I'm going to go up to the top and kind of rip down one time. And then we're going to go home. And, uh, the, the Southern skiing, it's steep and icy and crowded. And, uh, you know, I was, I was going fast and somebody just kind of came all the way across and hit me and knocked me into a tree and kind of off a little ledge. And that, wow. that was it kind of lights out. Wow. And for you, like when you were in the recovery out of all the things to gravitate towards, what do you think pulled you towards fly fishing? You know, from a philosophical perspective, you know, I would love to say that it was this appeal of what fly fishing really stands for. And, and, you know, this idea of kind of standing in a river can, can kind of wash away a lot of things. And I know a lot of people that fly fishing has been very healing for them. Uh, at the time, there wasn't a calculated thought in that in that way, right? It, it was just one of the few things that I could physically do, right? And and being going from being a very active, very fit nineteen year old to being stuck in a bed and learning how to walk again was well, was really really hard. Mm. And so being able to go outside and get out of the house was a big thing. And you could you know I could sit there with a walker and put one hand on the walker and just kind of cast my fly rod. I remember trying to you know hit a basketball in the yard. And there is something mm. very methodical and and relaxing about casting, you know, this just back and forth mm -hmm. and get in a rhythm and, um, you know, some language that I use uh, from guiding that I, that I think started there, uh, that I think one of the appeals of fly fishing is that in general, it takes just enough thought that you can't really think about anything else and not so much that is taxing. And it puts you in this really kind of perfect place and kind of moment of Zen. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons that you see such kind of powerful people in the world, you know, you know, CEOs and people who run business and celebrities and these people who have really high demand, high intense lives who really like fly fishing. And I think that's one of the reasons why. Mm. Um, and it's certainly kind of one of these things that for me, it puts me in a really good place and, and it always has. Mm. And so from there, you, you have this recovery and you start to do fly fishing. Talk me into how you go from standing in a walker, casting one-handed to where you are today as far as how this all evolved for you as a career and passion. You know, transitioning out of, of kind of getting better, you know, fly fishing was just a pursuit, right? I was still in school. You know, I went to the University of North Carolina uh, and I actually have a philosophy degree. Um, and and <laughs> my, my intent at the time was to be an attorney, right? I, my, my undergrad was driven towards I was going to go to law school. And you know, I also worked my way through college and I was way into the fishing and I got a job at uh, a local fly shop in Boone, North Carolina, which is my hometown. Um, 
not because I wanted to be in the industry and certainly not because I wanted to be a fishing guide. I actually got a part-time job in the fly shop because I just wanted to deal on my stuff, right? I, I was so into the fishing and I was a broke college student and it was expensive. So I just wanted a pro <laughs> deal. So I got a job at a fly shop and, um, and I did that, man. And there were some great people there and a lot of people who are still in the industry who have gone off to do amazing things. Uh, I mean, you know, Brad Platt and big John Anderson have an outfit there in Dillon, Montana called Anderson and Platt. And those guys taught me how to row a boat. And Matt Brewer was there who he and I, you know, did uh, the Guyana project together. And he's one of the best fishing guides I've met anywhere. And, you know, I ended up making some real lifelong friends and, and there was a lot of talent there and got, you know, so I elevated my skills and, and from that, you know, kind of part-time fly shop gig, it transitioned just organically into guiding. And I, my, my senior year in college, I actually put all my classes on Tuesday and Thursdays so I could go guide Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, right. And so I would go guide a four day weekend, come back and do school in the middle part of the week. And when I graduated college, it, it really, even then, it was not clicked that that was what I wanted to do. The plan was I was going to take one year off before going to graduate school and fish and travel. Mm. And it just kind of kept going, right? I got a job guiding down in Argentina in Tierra del Fuego for Sea Run Brown Trout. Uh, while I was down there, Carter Andrews uh, came down. He's like, man, you can't go back to North Carolina after guiding down here. And he got me a job in ja Jackson Hole. <laughs> I'd never been west, so I, I wrap, wrap up my first season in Argentina, and I have a job and a place to live in Jackson, all compliments of Carter. And I drove west for the first time and came out to Jackson. And, you know, how could you not, you know, fell in love. Um, and so for, you know, several years there, that was how I split my year guiding trout, you know, here, here in the Rockies, you know, in, in Wyoming, and then heading down to Argentina in the winter. And then I would spend my spring and falls traveling and fishing on my own with buddies. Hmm. So what did your early, so you were doing these kind of four day weekend, what, what type of trips were those? And how, how different was that than Argentina going from Boone, North Carolina to <laughs> Argentina? Oh yeah. I mean, the the North Carolina, so Boone is in West North Carolina, and almost all the guiding was in East Tennessee on these tailwaters, the Watauga and the South Holston. Um, and that was kind of the early days of, you know, just traditional float fishing. It was still in a raft back then. You know, now it's all hard boats. But it was, they were very much tailwater trout fishing in a boat, you know, rowing, entertaining people. And it was great, you know, and it was, you know, I loved the people connection. I, I love sharing and I love teaching and uh, you know, God knows what my first clients would have thought, man. I mean, I, I was such a kid and so green and, uh, <laughs> and, and just, it was so, you know, people we worked for were so reckless. I mean, it was, you know, in, in retrospect, it was all, all a terrible idea, but, but, but learned a lot. And then going down to Tierra del Fuego, I mean, this would have been, I think my first year in Tierra del Fuego would have been 2002, uh, you know, my very first season there, you're, you know, it's a naturalist fish, so you're swinging flies, but that was still single hand rods back then. I mean, you were fishing a 10 foot eight weight and you would kind of wait out as much as you could tolerate and cast to the bank at 45 degrees, try to get a nice swing. And, you know, it was probably 90% single hand rods and 10% double hand. And I did three seasons down there. And by the third season, the the double hand revolution had taken full force and so it, it was then 90 percent double hand and 10 percent single hand so it was a really interesting time to be there because the 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 fishing technique was evolving as the equipment got better and really the which would change the game then was that was a line man rio came out with their wind cutter 
double hand fly line, which was a multi-tip short, heavy head that kind of made uh, spay casting obtainable to normal people. And it really, you know, the, it was the best years they've ever had of fishing down there, man. We, we caught an incredible number of fish, a great average size of fish. And so uh, it was kind of a brutal guide season. I'd go, I would go down in November and guide literally without a day off until mid-April. So uh, I think my last year guiding full-time where I did Argentina and, and Jackson, man, I think I did 275 days that year. Wow. And and what did that learning curve look like going down there? Was there older guides who kind of showed you the way or did you have to do a lot more self-learning? What did that situation look like? Oh, no, like? man. I, I was young and green and there were a couple real veterans there, one of whom uh, I still think the absolute world of is, is a Russian guy named Max Mamaev. And he's the head guide on the Pinoy still. And he was just so innovative and so thoughtful. Mm. And, you know, he... So he would go guide on the Cole Peninsula in the Pinoy in the summer, and then he would come down to Tierra de Fuego in the winter, and he'd been doing it forever, man. I, I, wanted, I mean, I think by the time I got there, he'd already been there for 15 or more years. Um, and so he knew the river intimately. He knew anadromous fish, you know, between Atlantic salmon and sea run brown trout, which are very comparable. Um, and my, like an anecdote I can share that just kind of blew my mind is one of the seasons down there, it was really low water. And so you were fishing uh, small nymphs, you know, like, you know, like an eight or a 10, but you're fishing for a trout where the average fish is 12 pounds. And on any given day, you might catch a 20 or 25 pounder. So you're not tying like on a traditional trout hook. And very, very quickly we ran out of hooks. Um, and this wasn't, I mean, you know, I think I'd, you know, I got email once a week or something. It wasn't like you could kind of lob in an order or get anything. And, um, <laughs> and Max, uh, would, we had this, like on-demand propane hot water heater and he would crank up the hot water as hard as it would go so it would so you could get this flame going and he would take a streamer hook and stick it into the flame to break the temper of the steel and we would bend new eyes and then stick it back in oil and retemper it and uh you know we he and i would stay up at night and this is something that he showed me and you know we crushed the fish because we were manufacturing the hooks and God, man, I would have never figured that shit out without him. So, um, and, 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 and he was, he's amazing, man. And he's still guiding and he's still kind of a very, very quiet legend in, in the space. Hmm. Yeah. What, what a great story of innovation. And I, I haven't been able to travel to Argentina or, or a fishery like that, but, um, I would imagine that being able to think quick on your feet in some of those places where the infrastructure is low is absolutely critical for being able to have success. Oh, no doubt. I, I mean, then that's really, you know, from that, man, I, I think, man, I, I quickly got a travel bug and I still, man, I go and search for those places in the world now. I mean, y you know, it's hard to consider Argentina a wild place anymore. I mean, you go down there and it's, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the lodging programs, they're dialed, the guides are dialed, man, the equipment's perfect. I mean, it's there, there is none of this kind of rustic wild west that it used to be but uh you know that you can still go find that in parts of the world and i love love to go force your force yourself to go figure it out and crack the code and struggle a little bit i mean that's definitely my favorite so you go from argentina then you go to jackson hole w where do you go from there keep walking me through kind of the the progression of the past you know kind of couple places that you've been located and guided yeah, out of. um 
you know, all that time guiding and, and guiding hard and, and really, man, my singular focus in life at that time was fishing, man. I was a total dirtbag. I mean, I lived in a single wide trailer in Wilson, Wyoming in the summer. And then I would take the money I made guiding. I would guide every day all summer, took very few days off. And then I would travel in the fall, me and some buddies went to Venezuela one year for like a month to Los Rocos and bummed around. Um, you know, I hitchhiked through Chile, you know, I did all these just adventure fishing, just trying, uh, to go anywhere I could, you know, with no money and, um, and it was incredible. And then I'd go guide in Argentina and go and do it again. And, uh, that whole time though, man, I never, ever thought that that was what I was going to do with my life. Uh, I always thought mm. that that was a phase and a temporary th- part of of my life and my experience and at some point I would transition to go get a real job and for me I always envisioned that transition to look like going to graduate school man whether it meant going to get an MBA or going to get a law degree like all 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 those years of guiding I always expected to go back to school and go to do a more traditional corporate type career and Every time I got ready to quit, you know, I got some cool opportunity to go do something else, right? And it was, and <laughs> and it, that was just the way it worked. But it, but at the same time, and it was, you know, guiding didn't count as a real job, and I always knew that I was something that I was going to do. Um, and in in retrospect, and one of the things that I that I work hard on now is I think that guiding is a very honorable profession. And I think that a lot of really great guides quit guiding for the same mentality that I think is false, that, that it's not something you can do your whole life. And, uh, I tell people all the time and I, I've spent as much time working on my craft of guiding and fishing as, you know, my attorney who has worked on, on his, you know, and he's $700 an hour. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mm-hmm. we as fishing guides get to spend people's most valuable time with us. You know, the most valuable time people have, they want to spend doing what I get to do all the time. And so when you value that, mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important. And I work really hard now as I've trained guides and I don't guide hardly at all anymore, but I have a lot of guides working for me. And, you know, one of my goals is always figure out how to make that something that they can do as a career, as a profession that they can invest and devote their lives to and developing that craft and becoming really good at it and understand that they're going to be taken care of because it is, it is a real job and it is really important and it adds a lot of value to the world. What helped you understand that? I mean, because I think that I've definitely seen that as I've traveled around and talked with different people and especially the young guys, I, I think there's a lot of people around them when they're young that are telling them, are you really going to do this like retirement and things like that? What helped you and what helped you kind of have a paradigm shift there? Partly maturity, you know, partly just getting older and, and and being able to be a little more reflective. Um, But, but one of the things that really, really hammered at home for me is I've been able to guide and spend time with some of the most kind of powerful and important people in the world, man, people that, you know, whether they're famous or just incredibly successful or whatever it is. And, you know, I have a lot of those people that I call friends that have been clients and you would go and visit them in their homes and their office. And the pictures on their wall are the time they spend doing what I do. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so you and you're, you're with people that can do anything they want in the world. And, you know, the pictures that they're putting on their wall that are showing what's important to them are doing the things that I get to do every day. And, uh, and that really, really helped uh, me hammer at home for, for the value that you're kind of creating in the world by sharing something with other people. Wow. No, I think that's a a great perspective. And, um, 
I've been on the boat a bunch of times with my father, who's a, a fishing guide and have heard people say, man, I wish, you know, I wish this could be my job. And a lot of people, I think too, especially people who have made it in their career, a lot of clients tend to be older. And so there's a sense too, that they kind of feel like it's too late to shift. But for you, when, when did you make the decision? Okay. I'm actually just going to chase this thing down and really go all in at it. Was that something that you made in your twenties, your thirties? When did that happen? Yeah. So it, it really took me leaving fishing. So, uh, you know, I never thought I would do it forever. And, you know, like a lot of other people in your in your podcast, you mean the relationship you develop with your clients as a fishing guide, it it's it's incredible. I, I mean, I think Flip Pallet said, you know, people will share something in a boat that they wouldn't share in a confessional. And it's very much true. And if you've guided for years, man, you watch and 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 you develop your book of clients that you fish with every year and you you see them at their highs of their lives and you see them at their lows, you know, whether it's the success of businesses and having children uh, to getting divorces and losing businesses. And, um, but you end up with these very, very close relationships. And, uh, you know, like a lot of people, man, I, I've had clients offer me lot, lots of different opportunities. And when I was in my mid twenties, I guided, uh, Bill Ackman in Argentina and it was kind of his first big fishing trip. And, and it, we fished together for a week. And at the end of the week, he's like, you know, you should come work for me. And he uh, runs, you know, Pershing Square Holdings. That's his thing, which is just a monster hedge fund in New York. And so, you know, I kind of wrapped up my season in Argentina and got back to Jackson Hole. And there's a box in my house full of books and a letter from Bill you know, that he was serious and that I should read these books and give him a call. So, you know, I got, I was booked for already for the summer. So I, I guided all summer and I read these books, you know, I'm a pretty voracious reader anyway. And, uh, I read the books all summer and I called Bill and he flew me out to New York somewhere else I'd never been. And, uh, man, I, I called, called my buddy back in Jackson and said, Hey man, I need you to sell my truck and boat so I can, uh, afford an apartment here in New York. And, and that was it. And then I, and I, that that was the last time I guided full time, honestly. And, um, and I moved to New York and I, I want to say I was 25, 26 and I was there for a couple of years. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was the only member of the analyst team that hadn't gone to an Ivy league business school. Uh, you know, I have a philosophy degree. I didn't know shit about finance and, uh, and I was lost right <laughs> in it. And then I was just, I was lost in the city of New York and I was lost in this work environment and, and Bill is kind of one of the most amazing individuals I've ever met. And I can remember him calling me in his office after I'd been there for a couple of weeks and asking me how things were going. And uh, I was like, man, I'm just so lost, right? Like, I, I don't understand anything. I'm not helping. I'm just in the way. And I'm so confused. And, you know, I really just spend my time walking around, writing down things I don't understand, and then looking them up and trying to teach myself. And it, it was a really kind of hard space to be for someone like me who's very driven and, and generally uh, you know, work really hard and, and have been successful at most things that I've done. Um, and, and Bill told me something that, uh, really, really empowered me and kind of made my time there valuable and, and really just incredible and, and changed my life, which was everyone here is trained to think the same way. And you're a smart guy. And I just want you mm. to read and think about things and then tell us what you think because you're going to have a different perspective and you're going to find opportunity and that's what we're looking for and we'll teach you all the finance we'll teach you all these other things you need to know and so uh you know i spent two years in new york where really like people ask what i did man i mean i really i just read man i read all the time and i learned how to do excel and i learned how to read financial statements and i learned how to model and i learned how to communicate 
And, uh, you know, I learned how to kind of decipher the tea leaves of financial statements to see what the underlying business really looked like. And, and it was an invaluable mm. time in my life, man. It was an, a great education. Um, and kind of back to my personality, man, people like people who know me now, they're like, I can't believe you lived in New York. And, uh, you know, I, lo- I look back and New York was just such an incredible time for me and, uh, I wouldn't want to do it now, uh, by any stretch, but man, I, I'm, I was so focused in the kind of head down, uh, that I was just kind of grinding away. And then, you know, a little bit of time passed and, and Bill pushed me to, go to business school, go hone the skills, come back and, and kind of pursue this. And, and that process of uh, kind of looking and applying to business school was the moment that I was able to kind of get out of the trenches of what I was doing and get a little reflective and get a little introspective and realize that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And it also was the moment that I was kind of empowered to realize that, well, okay, well, what do you want to do? And, uh, and, and that was, I wanted to be back outside and I wanted the adventure and I, I did want to do more than just guide, right? I mean, I wanted to go and be successful and run, you know, have a real business, but do something that I was passionate and excited about. And, and Bill, uh, was incredibly supportive, right? He, he just said, okay, you go find what, what that is and I will backstop your deal. And so I started looking for an opportunity in the fishing space to get back in, uh, to where somewhere where I thought that I could kind of, kind of blend these two, right. I have kind of morphed my view now even more of the value of being a fishing guide. But at the time I still kind of, you know, I wanted to be in fishing, but I wanted to do more than just guide. And I was looking for a way to kind of create Mm. that in my life. Uh, and that's how I found, uh, a piece of land in the Bahamas that ultimately became Abaco Lodge. And, you know, there was no lodge there. There was nothing there. There's no lodge on the Island. Um, and I took everything I had, man, every dollar I had and uh, made an offer on a piece of dirt and, uh, made that work. And then Bill and his father were my only investors. And that's, that's how I ended up. I actually, so I went from Jackson Hole to New York City and New York City to Abaco, Bahamas. I mean, that was, that, <laughs> that was my, my transition right there. And I moved to the Bahamas, uh, in 2008 and, uh, and built Abaco Lodge from scratch, which like literally was hammering nails and painting and, and doing every part of building that business. Mm. And, and I'm really excited to kind of delve a little bit more into Abaco Lodge, but I just want to pause for a moment on this season of life where you're in New York city and you have a, a path in front of you and you hit the pause button and you try to say, is this really what I want to do? And you start to explore options. What advice would you give to somebody who's in a season of life? Who's saying I'm hitting the pause button and I'm trying to explore options. What advice would you give them to how to do that? Well, you know, backing up from that, I will say that having the ability and the encouragement and support of others at that age in my life is really what changed my life, right? I mean, that to be able to, at 27, 28, to be really reflective and know that I, ha- I could go and take real risk to create my vision of what perfect looked like, to be able to go and do that um, and have the financial support and the safety net to know that even if I fell on my face and failed, that it was going to be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, I don't ever discount or ignore the incredible luxury that that was at that time of my life. Um, 
And at the mm. same time, right, uh, you know, I have, I've had numerous of my friends, you know, tell me I'm like the luckiest person they've ever known. Um, but you also create your own luck by working really hard. And, and that, that part I've already mm. always had. And so you kind of combine the, the fortune of working really hard, really, really caring about being good at what you're doing. Right, I've really cared about being a good fishing guide. I really cared about giving people an incredible day when I was guiding. And I really cared about learning and providing value at my time when I was in New York. And then that, that foundation mm-hmm. helped create that next opportunity. Um, and, and, and it did, man. It, it, it changed my life, and I was able to start early, and it put me on just an incredible trajectory that I, uh, I feel very, very fortunate to have had. And, and for others, you know, I think you're right, man. You made that comment earlier of a lot of people get to that stage later in life and then it's too late, right? Or, or not this too late, but it's that much mm. harder, right? I mean, I, you know, yeah. I had, I had no mortgage. I had no home. I had, I had no debt. I had no kids, right? I could go and take big risk, you know, because the only consequences would have happened to me. And, you know, it's a lot harder mm-hmm. if you kind of go down a very traditional job and then all of a sudden you're in your thirties or forties and you are married with children and a mortgage and you have all these obligations and you realize that you hate this life that you've built. It's really, really difficult to pivot Mm -hmm. off of that because people are dependent upon you. So, uh, I I do encourage people, particularly when they're young to try lots of different things, right? You you know, don't, don't feel like you have to go down this one road, but bounce around a little bit, figure out what really excites you because that is the time of life where you can fail and you can take risk and, uh, you know, you can create some luck and and magic along the way by, by being dynamic and working really hard and, and meeting people. And the sooner you get on that path, man, the, the, the greater joy there is in life, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting. You talked about kind of assessing opportunity and, you know, everybody has their own advantages and everybody has their own pros and cons list. And, uh, somebody that's a friend that I consider a mentor to me is, uh, somebody I interviewed a while back, John Dunaway, who talked about how you have certain people who look at people's lives and they go, Oh, must be nice. Must be nice because of this must be nice because of this. And they're always kind of looking at other people and talking about how those people have better opportunities and those people have better advantages. And sometimes people do have certain advantages and opportunities that are unique and different. But one of the things that I've noticed in the people that I've interviewed that have done really interesting and I would consider them successful people is they have this ability, regardless of what circumstances are around them, to recognize opportunities and to have the courage to take them. For you, how did you assess the opportunities that were in front of you? And, and is there something that maybe, because when I look at your story and all the different places you've been, you've always had really unique and somewhat, maybe not financially risky, but definitely risk in the sense of you could go there, not do well and fail. You know, when you go from North Carolina to Argentina and then Argentina to Wyoming and then Wyoming to New York and then New York to the Bahamas, maybe there's not a financial risk, but maybe even that deeper risk that we all have, which is, oh, am I going to go there and look like an idiot and fail? How do you kind of assess those opportunities and what advice maybe would you give to, to trying to just grow and courage and take those leaps? Yeah. Uh, uh, the language I learned working in New York that I apply now going forward, which which I did when I was younger too, but I didn't realize it. But like the the language 
in New York would be I look for opportunities that are asymmetrical upside. And what, what that means is hmm. I, I will take risk any day where the downside, the negative consequences are capped, right? Where if the worst case hmm. scenario is that I might embarrass myself and the best case scenario is a lottery ticket, then yeah, 100%. Right. I'll take that. I'll take that any day. Right. And so, um, and, and, and all of those things wore that, right. Like even the decision to go to New York, like I I went to New York, not expecting to like the job, right. Like I I took the job recognizing that there was an opportunity, but my expectations were, Hey, I'm going to go to New York and it's going to be six months. And at the very least, I'm going to validate that I don't want to live in a city that I don't want to work in an office. I don't know what I want in life, but I don't think I want those things. And this is a way for me to know with certainty that that's the case. And the worst case scenario is that I don't go guide in Argentina for a winter and I go right back to Jackson Hole and I jump right back where I was, right? It's not that bad, right? That, that was very low risk. And the upside was, who knows, right? Who knows what happens when I go? Maybe I do like it. You know, maybe it's incredible. Maybe, you know, maybe, 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 maybe whatever, right? But, you know, that was a very acceptable mm-hmm. risk for me because the downside was minimal. The downside means I don't go to a guy in Argentina for four or five months and I go right back to where I was. So, yeah, I mean, I'll take that risk anytime. And... And I've also always had enough confidence where I do feel in general that I can always figure it out, right? If I have enough time, man, I'll figure, I'll figure it out, right? So I'm not ever worried about my ability to perform, right? It might take me longer. I might mm-hmm. be slower, but I can, you know, you give me enough time and I'll figure out whatever, whatever the puzzle is. And, um, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to work harder than most people. And, and, and I know that. And so that always allowed me the opportunity. I'm willing to go. Because I, I think I can compete and and eventually I'll get there and, and it'll be fine. Um, but I do find a lot of people are incredibly risk averse and they miss a lot of what I would call the great joys in life because of that. Mm. Uh, what great advice that is to just kind of coming from, okay, you go to New York City and you don't have this kind of robust career in investment, finance, et cetera, but you learn these lessons and you're able to apply them in your fishing career. I'm curious before we dive b- back into Abaco Lodge, what are some of the other lessons that you learned from your time in the corporate world of New York City that you feel like are helpful to you and how you live today? Oh, no doubt, man. The financial skills that I learned uh, totally changed my perspective on life, right? The ability to understand how business works and you know how the cow cash flow works and and how to think on a bigger scale, right? And that very quickly transitioned into the next opportunity, which was Abaco Lodge, which, you know, prior to being in New York, man, the idea of getting a million dollars, I mean, my dad was in the army, my mom taught preschool, I grew up very middle class, right? Like a million dollars was unfathomable or $2 million or whatever the number was, you know, I didn't have it and I didn't know anybody that had it. So that just took those opportunities off the table. Uh, My time in New York, very much not only allowed me to understand how businesses work, but to also understand how much money is in the world and how, how much those people are looking for opportunities to deploy that money to do things that either are just great investments or things they're excited about or people that they're excited mm-hmm. about or some combination of those, right? And, uh, and from that, man, Abaco was my first project, but like in today's world, man, I don't care if it's a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, man, I'm willing to look at it because if the math makes sense and the opportunity makes sense, I have a firm belief that I could go find the money to do it. 
I don't have it, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be really clear, man. I, I don't have any of that. But like I, I, I believe that I can read it and figure it out and communicate to a, a group of people that will understand it and appreciate it and help finance it and create opportunity for myself at the same time. And all of that, you know, that fundamentally is the skill that I developed and honed in New York that has allowed me to kind of continue off doing what I do now. Yeah, that's, that's really, um, I think really helpful to a lot of people too, who maybe listen to the show and they love fishing, but they're just, they're, they have a, a passion to start a restaurant or start something else. I think there's, there's a lot of people who they allow money to be a barrier, but just because it's not in their bank account, I think that's really helpful. So talk to me. Okay. So you, you decide I'm going to leave New York city. You end up in the Bahamas you're starting a lodge. What did that season of life look like? And kind of how did you kind of build that from the ground up? And what did that progression look like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one, I was over my head, right? Like I I didn't know anything about, (laughs) I didn't know anything about a construction. I didn't know anything about trying to do business in a developing country. Uh, You know, I just, it, on paper, it made sense. And I was confident in my abilities to kind of go and figure it out. And and it, it was, man, it was an incredible and difficult time, right? I, I think the other thing that people from afar often miss, and this goes to John's comment, man, who, who, who I don't know, man, but, but from afar, but, but I can resonate with that a lot, is that people see all the good, man, especially social media, right? They see all these incredible uh, things mm-hmm. and experiences, and it's easy to say, oh, I wish I had that, or that person's so lucky, man. But, uh, man, there's a lot, a lot of grind and a lot, a lot of hard work, and there's a lot, a lot of suck that goes behind all that stuff too, right? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in New York, man, there were there were moments, man, where I just kind of broke down and cried in my office because I was like, man, this is this is fucking hard and I'm lost and I don't, Mm. I shouldn't be here and I don't know what to do. And I'm not, and, and man, and that's happened numerous times in my life, man. It happened in, in building Abaco, man, which was really, really hard for lots of reasons that I didn't expect. I mean, when I, when I, Mm. when I went and pitched Bill on doing this project, you know, my expectation was building the business would be the easy part. Getting the customers was going to be the hard part. And man, I, it could not have been a complete 180 from that, man. Finding people to come fish there was the easiest thing we ever did, man. Running a business in the Bahamas was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, um, and that wasn't the experience I expected, right? But you kind of play the cards you're dealt and you just, you just have mm-hmm. to have to learn and adapt. And, uh, there was a lot, a lot of good that came from that, man. And, uh, and I, and I look back with really fond memories and it was incredible. And there was a lot of it, man, that I wouldn't wish on anybody that I would never want to do again. Mm. And that's also part of what makes the good so good. Mm. And when somebody's dealing with that breakdown moment in life, and I think I'm going to guess that almost everybody can resonate with that. How do you pick yourself back up and try to move forward and not just find yourself in the same pattern where, for like you had mentioned earlier, someone's doing something they hate for 20 years or 30 years. How do you try to pick yourself up from that moment? You know, for me, I think one of the things I think about is you just can't sit still, right? And, and uh, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm fidgety, right? So like I'm rolling paper and doing things. So that's partly my personality, but, uh, but, but it's sincere of, man, even when things are really hard, you got to move forward. Right. Because uh, whatever it is in life, man, the good and the bad, man, it, it won't ever be be permanent. And so uh, and you can take that perspective and understand that 
it, it won't always be this bad, right? And what are the little things that I can do right now to help make it better, right? I think oftentimes people get lost because the problem seems too big to solve, but the the goal with all of it, and when I'm interviewing managers to to run lodges for me, it's like, hey, there will be an endless list, a never ending list of things that need to get done. It, no matter how good you are, no matter how hard you work, no matter what's going on, the it, the list of things that need to be done will always be there. And the value you mm-hmm. add and the goal and your success is really on your ability to look at that list and figure out what the single most important thing is and put it to the top. And then what's the second most mm-hmm. important thing and then move it below that. And if you can constantly take mm-hmm. this list of, of endless tasks that need to be done and constantly reprioritize to what is the most important at that moment, then that is how you both in create incredible value um, and it's also how you find success in what you do. Because even when things are really bad, there's this whole list of things and there's one thing there that will help make it better, right? So go figure out what that is and do that. And then when you get to that, that next step, you got to figure out the next one. And, and that's the reshuffle. You can't yeah. get lost in the noise. You got to be able to make a decision, process the information, and, and find the one thing that's going to help move the needle. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I remember I, I read a book once and it talked about um, you when you're you're making a to-do list, for lack of a better phrase, you can take a sheet of paper, you can drive it or, or draw it into four quadrants, urgent and important, important, not urgent, not important, not urgent, and important, not urgent, or however those four quadrants end up being, and then forcing yourself to put put everything that you need to do into the right category. Something might be really important, but it's not urgent. Something might be really urgent. It's not important. Something might be both. Okay, well, now I got to focus on that. And I know in my life, when I look back at moments where I was just really stressed and overwhelmed, I know for me, I was, I wasn't really thinking in those quadrants. I was just thinking, I got so many things that I need to do. And I feel so behind on so many things that I can't even put it all down on the list. And even to this day, when I get stressed out, I'll actually take a sheet of paper and I will draw those four quadrants out and I'll force myself to do a brain dump and put everything down on there. And all of a sudden, what it, it helps me with is most things that I'm really stressing on are not important and urgent at the same time. And it, it does allow me to kind of have, okay, there's plenty of things that I can do. There's never been a moment in the past 10 years where I couldn't fill up a sheet of paper with stuff. But so often that urgent and important thing section is is much shorter than it feels in that moment. It's helpful. It's therapeutic for me to actually do that. Um, and I think that's for most people, they could just write a list of 100 things that they wish they were doing or need to do. But at the same time, they couldn't tell you what's what's the most important, most significant thing they need to do. And I think that's, that's super helpful life advice. No, I mean, that's a, it's a great exercise, right? And, um, and it forces you to be really honest with yourself. And, and you said something earlier too, that I also really think resonates with me as well is when things don't go how I want them to go, right? It's really easy to look at the external forces of, of why, you know, but, but fundamentally for me, I always look at myself of, okay, what could I have done different? How could I have reacted different? How could I have done things differently to, to get to where I wanted to go? Mm. And I, I take all these moments in life to be very self-critical and it, it means I'm often really hard on myself. And, um, but it also pushes me to towards directional improvement, which I think is, is another thing that I really strive for is, uh, 
It's not that I, I'm looking for perfection, but I want to be better tomorrow than I was today, and I want to be better a week from now than I was, you know, last week. And as long as I'm working in that way, then then I can find a lot of solace and comfort in that too. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And and so often in life, it it feels like it's it's um, you know, it's kind of like hiking up a mountain. You know, in order to go up, every once in a while, you're just gonna have little moments where you you track down for a second. You know, you climb up a rock and you track down a little bit and you climb back up and Sometimes you got to be gracious to yourself and zoom out a little bit and say, wow, okay, six months ago, you know, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm having a tough day today, but six months ago, look how far I've come or, or six years ago, look how far I've come. And I think just trying to force ourselves into that perspective is really helpful. Um, so for you, you go from, you go from Abaco, how do you get from Abaco to where, where you are today? kind of running lodges and what did that progression look like for you? Because we could do a whole podcast just on your time with everything going on in the Bahamas. But what did, what did that kind of look like moving forward from there? Yeah, man, I have a whole, whole, whole book of Bahamas experiences. I mean, it was, it, it, you know, it was a wild time of my life. Um, and it was great. And, um, and, and from that came a lot of other opportunities. I mean, that's how I started kind of working more directly and intimately with, with brands and getting sponsorships and, you know, being able to do some, some filming and some photo shoots and, and kind of created, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of opportunity to grow and run with. Um, but I was so committed to kind of the building of, of Abaco Lodge, man, that I was very, very singular focused and I, I very much burnt myself out. Right. And I was, I was really bitter there for a long time, uh, of just, you know, how, how hard it was and how hard I worked and, and kind of constantly getting kicked in the teeth as, as you kept pushing forward there. Um, and I was also, it was very, very hard for me to let go. I mean, it was very close to me. And, uh, something I still struggle with is the delegation of, of, of task, right? Like I, I, I you know, mm-hmm. I, I want to do too much and, and, and I'm not very good about getting, getting and asking for help and, and things like that. And I keep working on that as well. But, but Abaco very much got to a point where, man, I had to kind of put at arm's length and I hired my first set of managers and, uh, they were incredible people and they worked really hard. And, um, and ultimately mm-hmm. I think the reason it didn't work out for them long-term was my failure to kind of hand over the reins and let them have full control over that. And, uh, you know, kind of went through a couple, couple of various managers and had some good people. And it took, took a little while for me to put some distance between myself to really appreciate all the good that had been created and how special the place was and how magical it was and, and all of that. And, uh, but during, during that time, I also, that's where I really started traveling hard and hosting trips and kind of, uh, you know, I was still, still, and still am, you know, I, I don't know what it is that forces me or, 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 you know, man, I have this incredible insatiable desire to just explore and, uh, do things. And, uh, you know, it really, in a lot of ways makes no sense, but, um, and I had this great drive to go do that. And, and I spent a, a bunch of those years kind mm-hmm. of managing what became Abaco and, and then a second property in South Andros called Bears Lodge. So I was kind of managing them relatively remotely, popping in monthly and checking in and kind of mentoring a team under me in both places and, and traveling and fishing really hard. And, it, you know, that's when I did that for 10 years and it was really, really great. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you know, again, meet other people, create new opportunities and. Um, and so I'm currently 
back in Jackson Hole, right? Kind of gone full circle. I'm living back in Wyoming. And my my new project is the South Fork Lodge, which is an hour west of Jackson. Um, and we bought mm-hmm. this a couple of years ago during COVID. And it's it really, man, it's a kind of full circle deal, man. Back to trout, back to a part of the, the world where I kind of started, um, you know, my partner in this one is Jimmy Kimmel, uh, someone who I met in the Bahamas, you know, fishing, doing a, a little TV show and got to be good buddies. And then we, we started traveling and fishing together quite a bit after that. And, uh, you know, it's a great culmination of talent, man. This is a big, big place, man. We have, you know, 35 rooms. I mean, I can, you know, we take a lot of people fishing. I have a lot of employees. It's very hospitality experience focused and it's a lot of fun, man. I, I really, my, my favorite thing in all of these things is, is the building process, man, the building of the culture, the building of the systems, kind of teaching people under you, you know, how to execute my vision and helping make them better, um, is definitely one of my, my favorite things. And we're, we're very early in that and what this place is. And, um, that's kind of my core, mm-hmm. core focus right now. Yeah. And to me, it's an exciting thing just to watch from afar and, and, you know, I'm excited to, to one day come and see it, see it myself. But, you know, I think a lot of people who want to go into the outdoor world, you kind of have two predominant approaches that get lifted up. You have one approach that is, man, I've been fishing here. I've been fishing these waters for 30 years, you know, and same waters haven't left. I mean, this is my backyard. And then you have another side of people who seem to, to move from place to place, learning new fisheries, going to new places. I'm curious for you, if you were going to make the case, not that, not to create a false dichotomy or to try to place some sort of value on one over the other, but if you were going to encourage somebody to not just stick to what they know, but to push themselves outside of their comfort zone, something you alluded to earlier, how would you make that case? You know, I think it really goes both. Uh, I mean, some of my favorite people and guides to fish with anywhere are people that have devoted their lives to becoming experts in their space. Right. And, you know, you did a podcast with Mangum, who's a good buddy of mine, and that's a perfect example. Right. I mean, he, he, owns that right that is his man he's devoted his life to it and he has mastered it right and uh and at the same time you know he's not complacent right he pushes every day and every year like it it amazes me the drive that he has to be better when he's already the top right he's already clearly the top and he's still every year i fish with him and every year he's pushing to get better and better and better and that's the mentality that it takes right to 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 achieve that and and he is one of the best examples of that and uh you know somebody else i fish with who you've also talked to is blaine chocolate and same thing man blaine is so on top of his game and he's you know Mm -hmm. he has his home little radius and he has mastered that and he continues to push and he continues to drive. And it meant, and when you get to spend time in the boat with people like that, it's an amazing, amazing experience, right? There's, there's a reason that people, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, really, really wish they had more days with those guys. Um, at the same time, and my experience has been very different, right? I didn't, I, I didn't stay home and I, I, I was a wanderer and, uh, there was also a lot of value there and and the value is a little bit different in that, I was able to do a lot of different things and apply different experiences to different places and it helped me grow and it helped me learn faster. Right. I, I would argue mm-hmm. that, you know, 
in when I was guiding and switching my seasons between trout in the northern hemisphere and trout in the southern hemisphere, man, I got a lot better faster because I was able to put more time on the water. Right. I mean, there, there is some real mm-hmm. thought and logic to, Hey, it's just putting in the time, right? If you put in 10,000 hours, then you should be an expert. And if you're guiding twice as much, you can get there faster. Right. So I do think that there's some, some real value there. And I also think there's some value of doing kind of off the wall experiences and, 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 you know, mm-hmm. every day, you know, one of the things I've said before is like, I feel like every day you go fishing, it's like reading a book, right. And that book goes in your library And, you know, the more days you fish, the deeper your library is and the more information you have to pull from from the next day when it's hard and you're trying to figure something out. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's something if you are only fishing one place and all your books are about that, then, yes, it becomes very technical and you become a master. And at the same time, if your books are over uh, an incredible array of experiences, arguably it's more interesting and arguably you you get to apply something that you learned trout fishing in Lesotho to trout fishing in Wyoming or whatever the case may be. And, and and I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and I also probably don't have the personality to be, to be driven in one place and and focused on the nuance of kind of doing that my, my whole life. And so I found another way that worked Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, it's interesting that you you said that you felt like you didn't have the personality. I was curious if you thought that that was something innate. You had talked about earlier, you you couldn't really describe why you had such a travel bug and desire to explore. And I guess because I, I just turned 30 this past year. So, you know, to a lot of the people that I've spent time interviewing and spent time fishing with, I feel relatively young. And I feel like a lot of younger people are trying to figure out what what their path is like, do they want to really marry themselves to one area? Do they want to try to really push themselves hard to, to travel? Because a lot of guides have a hard time traveling a ton because they need to, they need to fill those days on the water. And when somebody calls and wants to book four or five days, you need to a year out, you need to do that. And that's a, that's a week that you can't last minute go run somewhere. And so I'm curious to you, is that something that that you feel like is innate in people or do you think that it's a little more complicated? I definitely think it's more complicated. And and it's also, it's the balance of the language that was used in the Bahamas often was polling for dollars. And, and it's one of, it, mm-hmm. there are some of the best flats guides anywhere in the Bahamas. Right. I, I mean, I wouldn't discount that at all. I'm there. There are some just incredibly talented and passionate and, that truly love it and are really good. And, um, and, and the time in their, in their skiff is incredible. But I would also say, man, that a lot, possibly even the majority of guides in the Bahamas are polling for dollars, right? It's the difference of, mm-hmm. you know, in South Andros where Bears Lodge was, man, the best job on the island was to be a bonefish guide. And so that attracted a group of people that weren't necessarily passionate anglers or passionate guides, but people that were passionate about the money associated with it. And that creates a very different Mm -hmm. mentality. And one of the things that happens in the U.S., by and large, is people are attracted to the space because they have this passion. And, uh, and then they have this passion and the passion drives them for so long. And then you get far enough that Mm -hmm. you then be like, all right, now this is a career and you have to harness it and you have to master it. And that's where it becomes challenging of, you know, of, hey, if I don't take these people today, man, I can't book this day ever again. What am I going to do? Right. And so there is mm-hmm. this real balance of creating a career and a job along with the passion and, and the excitement that brought you there originally. And 
I also know a lot of incredible fishing guides that have no desire to go anywhere else, right? That they, they don't have a passport. They're not going to go wander around wherever and, and try to figure it out in a country with a language they don't speak. And, uh, and that's totally fine. Right. And, uh, um, but for me, right. Like, I especially now, right. Or early on, I, I would say that the fishing was the driver for everything I did, man. It was like, all right, I, I want to go fish. Let's go here. And, and now mm-hmm. the, the fishing is the thread that ties it all together, man. But the, the people you're with and the culture and the adventure and, and the fishing is the reason, uh, is, has definitely evolved where, where my travels are a little different for sure. So let me ask this way. If you would have stayed in North Carolina and kind of that initial bubble where you started, um, in your college years, what do you feel like you would have missed that you've picked up from all the traveling and fishing, especially when it comes to being an angler, I should say too, because I'm sure life, there's so many life lessons, but as far as being an angler, what, what would have you missed? Do you think? Yeah, I don't know that I ever would have gotten out of a box. Right. I mean, like, I think you, yeah, I, I, I just can't imagine had I stayed in Western North Carolina, fishing small stream trout streams with like a seven foot three weight. And then, you know, fishing tailwaters in East Tennessee, you know, what my angling ability or career would have looked like. I, I think it would have been very stunted, right? Like, I don't know, like you could have handed me a 12 weight. I don't know that I would know what to do. And, um, uh, at the same time, man, like now, man, I love throwing a 12 weight and I love throwing a two weight, right? Like, I mean, and everything in between. And I think that moving between them makes me better at both. And I don't know that I could have ever gotten there without having experienced the other side a little bit. When you say it made you better at both in in what way? Yeah. It's kind of like, once you learn to double haul, man, you can't stop. Right. I mean, you know, if if I'm throwing a two eight, I'm still double hauling now. It's just so natural. It's so innate, right. It's just so Mm -hmm. comfortable. Uh, and it's so efficient, right. Right. There's a reason that you do that. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, the differences of trout fishing and setting with the rod and saltwater fishing and setting with the line, you know, all those various line management kind of masterful skills of being able to use the tools Mm -hmm. to their best performance. Right. It, it's surprisingly natural to switch between them. Um, and, and I think it, it does, man. I mean, cause you end up with these opportunities, trout fishing where, you know, to get a longer drift or to the more difficult fish, you were kind of pushing the boundaries of what that equipment can do that you wouldn't have been comfortable with had you only trout fish, but knowing that you would saltwater fish and knowing how far you can cast and knowing how much line you can take up if you need to, uh, you know, I do, I think it creates more opportunity. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Um, you know, one of the things too, that's kind of interesting, I guess that's maybe intimidating about the idea of going to all these new places is trying to figure out fisheries and fish behavior and patterns and everything just for fun. Let's, let's say that me and you tomorrow get dropped off in a helicopter and we're in an unknown fishery somewhere and we we're trying to figure out what can we catch? How can we catch it? And we're really starting from zero. I mean, there's, there's nobody there. There's not a fly shop with a board up that tells us what to fish. There's nothing like that. It's just, it's just us out in a new place trying to figure out what can we catch. Talk me through how you would try to approach that fishery and put all the pieces together as quickly as possible. Yeah. 
you know, usually there's no fly shop, right? So you're used to that, but there usually is also kind of local knowledge. And so one of my favorite things to do when I travel anywhere is to hit the fish market, right? And just see what's there. Like, what are people catching? What are people eating? You know, which fish do I recognize? And then which ones do I know that I want to go catch? And you're asking the guy, did, did you catch this here? And where did you catch it? And, and you could do a lot of that without even speaking the language. And, um, you know, when we first went to Guyana and we were exploring for Arapaima, which, we, you know, at the time there's very little information about, you know, we would just ask the, the locals, like, hey, do you see this fish? And you'd show them a picture and they'd be like, yes, we see it. Like, okay, well, what do they eat? And they would tell you. And they're like, oh, they eat peacock bass. And they're like, all right, well, we have all our stuff. Let's see if we can make something that looks like peacock bass. Can you take me somewhere where you see these fish? And then you would, you know, try to connect all these, these pieces. And then you combine that mm-hmm. with whatever you're seeing, right? You're processing all the information, obviously, you're taking in, man, the, the water depth, the water clarity, you know, what you're watching the fish do. And, um, and you just constantly kind of evolve and, and trial and error. And that's where it's the best way to do those types of trips is with somebody else. Because if it's just you, man, mm-hmm. you, you only kind of have your your logic and the way you're thinking and, and whatever you're doing. But if you can go with a group of buddies who are all pretty talented and everybody's approaching the same problem differently, and then you're collaborating at the end of the day, um, that, that for me are, are definitely my favorite trips. Yeah. It's funny you say that too, because it kind of circles back to what you talked about when you were in New York, that everybody was trained to think the same way. And, you know, that's one of the fun things about fishing with new people is everybody does everything a little different you know they have their own style their own approach their own way of thinking of things that's been one of the most fun things like I I think about the last time that I was in the Bahamas we got weathered out one day and we all hung out around the lodge and I'm just sitting there listening to people talk about their approach on things I'm learning things that you know even just from hearing them I, I probably would have never thought of or never looked at it that way and I think that's definitely one of the most fun parts about fishing is just being around other people and picking up and learning from them. And whether it's a a guide who is learning life lessons and finance. And it's funny, I've met so many guides who are into investing because the people they fish a lot of times are somewhere in the finance world or whatever. But I think that's definitely one of the most enjoyable things is just the relationships you build and the things that you learn. What, What advice would you give to somebody who's young when it comes to picking fishing partners and thinking through kind of how to build meaningful relationships? Oh, no doubt. And I think, uh, one, it's it's understanding and respecting the value that you're adding, right? And and also really putting the right value into that. And, and, and when I'm training a lot of guides, one of the examples I often give is the most va- – it doesn't matter what, what we're charging, right? It doesn't matter what this trip costs – you know, whether it's a $20,000 trip to the Seychelles or a $500 trout trip, right? The, the, the most valuable thing anybody ever gave you is their time. And you have to value that appropriately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for some people, this is going to be a trip that they've saved up for and looked forward to. And you know what? The weather might be shitty or whatever, you know, whatever's going on, right? But, like, that is their time. You as the guide, you get to do this every day. So you... You know, you get the good and the bad, but like every day for that person is, is important and you need to value that appropriately. And it's a simple, uh, you know, a simple thing I give them is, hey, if, if you're driving from your house to the lodge 
and the gas station would mean you have to drive an extra five minutes past the lodge and come back. But you're going to go drive past the gas station once you pick up your guest, right? The, the right thing to do is you leave your house early, you fill your truck up, and then you come back to work. Because even though it only takes a couple of minutes in the truck, man, those are a couple of minutes that belong to that other person, right? They, you know, they, and you have to value their time well, right? And if you, if you put that effort into valuing their time and to giving them everything they can, Right. For, for that time with whatever, whatever you get, man, whether it's bad weather or great fishing or tough fishing, but you give them everything you can for their time. And, um, and, and the idea of being a memory maker, right. That it's not just about the fishing, man. It's, it's about kind of the memories you're creating and the stories you're going to give them to go and tell. And, uh, another, another little anecdote that I share often when I'm training guides was when I was young, I mean, I was, trout fishing and I had a two boat trip with the head guide. Right. And I, you know, I was a young cocky, uh, you know, you know, so, so my goal was like, man, we got a two boat trip. I got the head guide, man. I'm going to kick his ass. Right. That's how I approach the day. Mm-hmm. And like the clients are like, Hey man, we want to be back at the bar at five o'clock, you know, whatever, man. Uh, so we, I, my guys get back, man. It's like a little after six, we walk into the bar like I walk into the bar first, clients are behind me and I'm looking for the head guide. Cause man, we had just had a killer day of fishing. I had fished them really hard. We'd got a lot of big fish and I thought, I see the guy, the head guide at the bar and he's laughing and his sports are stoked and they're having a great time and they're joking. I turn around and look at my guys and their heads are hung and they are whipped and like, you know, and I walk up to the head guide. I'm like, Hey man, how was your day? And he was like, Oh, it was awesome. And we didn't even fish, man. We just drove around and looked at animals all day. He's like, these guys didn't want to fish. They're just on vacation. And I look back at my guys and they had had an incredible day of fishing, man. Like I had fished them so hard. They'd caught so many big fish outside of their ability. And you know what? That wasn't what they wanted, right? They were on my program, hmm. right? These other, their buddies are super stoked and they're drunk and they've had a great day. And they didn't even launch the boat. And man, that was another really pivotal moment for me as a guide of realizing that it's about what the client wants, right? And it's our job to kind of give them that hmm. and to read that. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things as I work with, with younger guides and, and, and people working for me that I really try to convey of like, man, you're, you're here to, to give them the experience that they're looking for. Hmm. I, that's good. I think, I think there's, there's so many places in life. I think that we do the same thing where we take our own desires or our own ego and we push it on our kids, we push it on our friends, we push it on our relationships and we get the same type of result. You know, we're just... Um, so I think that's, I think that's really helpful. Uh, if it's good with you, I'd love to transition a couple rapid fire questions just before we wrap it up that just kind of a couple things I'm just curious about with some of the things that you've lived and learned. Yeah, absolutely. So my first one is you talked about, you were a pretty ferocious reader. I'm curious, what would you say is the best book that you've ever read? Mm, man, those are tough, right? Like, so one, I would say it ebbs and flows between reading just great fiction, uh, which I'm obviously mm-hmm. a huge fan of. Of all the people you would expect, man, man, Hemingway, Jim Harrison, Steinbeck, all of all of those, um, and then I also really love kind of the nonfiction developmental books, uh, and and one of those that I always recommend is this book called Flow about you know being in the state of flow and growing, and uh, and that's kind of one of my general principles of life of like just trying to figure out how to stay in the state of flow because that's when I'm happiest. So you've traveled a lot and gone to a lot of different places. If, if somebody came to you and said, all right, Oliver, I want to travel. I'm going to take one destination trip and it can't be 
to your lodge. <laughs> so we'll take we'll take that off just to make it easy. But if you were going to tell them, here's one one trip to make. What trip would that be? Yeah, that's also not fair, right? These are these are loaded questions. We're we're, we're, we're going to give you. Uh, well, if you get one, if you get one, it's very easy, man. My favorite fishing is flats fishing, hands down. The Seychelles. Dot, I mean, there's just no, there is no second, right? I mean, like if you ask me my top five fishing trips in the world and I telling you that my favorite thing in the world is a saltwater flats fish, the only one in the top five is the Seychelles because there's just nothing else that comes mm. close to that. What has been the best advice that somebody has given you around fishing or being an angler? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, be curious, man. L- listen, listen more, right? You, you, no matter who you, you know, less than you think you do. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for having some humility and taking an opportunity to, to hear what, what other people have to offer there. And there's always something to figure out, right? You, you never, you never have it just right, man. There's always, there's always another layer to the onion there. Who do you feel like was the most influential person in your life? Uh, you know, I've got a, a short list of mentors for sure. But, uh, it, you know, my my experience with Bill Ackman was more transformative in my life and the path that I'm on than, than any, both from a confidence building and an education and also creating the opportunity to to take the skills that I had and really grow and apply them in a, in a meaningful way. And so it, uh, without a doubt been like that, that was the singular person and experience that really transformed my life. What's the biggest mistake that you see young guys or girls making in the industry, fishing industry? you know, you hate to sound and feel like the old guy in, in all of this, but I think people want it too quickly, right? Like, uh, I think that's one of the downsides of social media is the instant gratification. And there's not enough people putting in kind of the time and effort that it takes to kind of build both the knowledge and the respect and, and, and things that are required to, to really, to really grow and benefit from. Hmm. Oh, that's good. What what's one interest or hobby that you have unrelated to fishing that people might be surprised that you have? You know, uh, I mean, I love to shoot birds. Um, you know, I generally w- w- would argue I'm, I'm a pacifist for most things, but I mean, I do. I mean, I love I love to upland bird hunt. Um, you know, I'm a dad now, so there's there's not much that beats uh, hanging with the kiddos for sure. And that that could be my last question, but what's one lesson you've learned as a dad that you feel like has made you better on the water? Mm. You you know, taking my my boys out, you know, you know it's also cliche as a parent, right? You kind of hate all these things, but it is. It's a great way to kind of go back to the very beginning and revisit of all the things that got you excited about this and why they're all so great, right? Like you know, catching brim and, and panfish in a pond, uh, like there's no way I would just go do that on my own right at this stage. But like <laughs> you can go and you can take your little boy and you go and do those things again and you re-remember and re-recognize and revisit all the reasons that that is so awesome. And it is also very, very apparent that 
you know, connecting yourself to a fish with a little piece of string is this very primal and innate thing. And you watch mm. the joy in kids as they have it and how important that is and, and like how much you should try to get back to that as an adult, because man, that, that is ultimately what started this whole path. Hmm. I, that's, that's good. I, as a father, I can definitely second that. And it, each time I spend time on the water with my kids, it definitely reignites something in me that I think if I'm focused on the wrong things, I, I tend to lose. And man, I'm so grateful for the time that you've given me today and uh, lots of great lessons in here. I know a lot of people are going to have plenty of things to take away. And thanks so much just for coming on the show. And I look forward to sitting down again and can't wait to learn more. No, Hunter, thanks so much, man. It was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, next time we'll have to connect it and do it on the water somewhere, you, your, your neighborhood or mine. <laughs> I would love that, man. Well, thanks, Oliver. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Help us out by sharing this podcast with your friends online and leaving us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv